This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, we're highlighting Martin Robinson's new book, Curriculum Revolutions. Curriculum Revolutions is a tool to assist schools in creating, building, and maintaining a joined-up curriculum that is cohesive and coherent. Martin Robinson's unique curriculum wheel leads you through a continuous cycle of planning, designing, delivering, reflecting upon, and reviewing your curriculum. This process is designed to involve managers, teachers, and pupils, and to ensure that all understand the importance of a well-functioning curriculum as the cornerstone of the school and the quality of education it delivers. Curriculum Revolutions also explores the potential pitfalls in the curriculum that a school adopts, either consciously or unconsciously. Robinson argues that a sophisticated understanding of the underlying structure or thought architecture of a curriculum can make all the difference to quality curriculum design. So, if you're keen for more insights into curriculum planning, you can get Martin Robinson's Curriculum Revolutions at John Cat Educational. And with a special code ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. This includes my two books too, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realize the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 71 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR, this time recorded entirely in the United Kingdom. Today we're speaking with Catherine Burblesing. Catherine is the founder of Michaela Community School, a phenomenal school in Wembley, London. Michaela Community School has a reputation for being the strictest school in Britain and among the strictest schools in the world. From silent corridors to the chanting of poetry, Michaela, and Catherine as its principal, has been at the centre of many debates and arguments about the effectiveness and the moral foundations of their practices. At the same time, the results that Michaela students achieve are spectacular. Year on year, its progress results place it amongst the top handful of schools in England, and it truly has materially improved the life opportunities of thousands of students from primarily disadvantaged backgrounds. Among all of this controversy, I was keen to go to Michaela and see the strictest school in Britain for myself. I was also lucky enough to have an hour with Catherine during my visit, during which we had the discussion that you're about to hear. It was a really amazing visit, and I was absolutely blown away by the quality of teaching, the focus of the students, 
and the way that the school ran like clockwork. This visit to Michaela was quite revelatory to me, and put simply, I didn't know just how high high standards could be until I went to the school. One way that I've explained it to people when they've asked is as follows. Imagine the the best teacher you've ever seen, or perhaps the absolute star teacher in your school. Now, usually when you visit a school, there's one or two teachers at this level, this really truly elite teacher level. Well, at Michaela, every single teacher is that good. Every single teacher is a star teacher. I was lucky enough to have about 45 minutes during my trip to kind of walk around and explore the school and go into any classroom that I wanted. I saw as many classrooms as I possibly could, and it was absolutely amazing, the quality of teacher and the consistency in every single room. I really didn't think such consistency of high practice was possible, but it really shone through at Michaela. Another thing to keep in mind about this interview is that it was recorded prior to my visit to classrooms. This is in contrast with my interviews with Anne Cunningham, Andy Sprakes, and Gwynapp Harry from the prior three episodes of the Eat Your podcast. And it's just because Catherine had a very busy schedule that day, so we could only fit in our interview right at the start of the day. If my interview with Catherine had come after my classroom visits, this enthusiasm for Michaela's practices would have shone through in my interview more so than it was possible for that to happen prior to me seeing the actual classrooms. If you're keen to hear more of my personal reflections on Michaela beyond what I've shared here, as well as reflections on the two other schools that I visited, June-July trip to the UK, XP and the Self-Managed Learning College, I've recently released a two and a half hour recording on this topic via the ERRR Members Only podcast. To listen and to hear other ERRR Members Only episodes, go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. And if you're keen to never miss a podcast, blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then be sure to jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe to make sure you get all the updates from me about teaching and learning in my weekly email. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 71 of the ERRR podcast with Catherine Burblesing. Catherine Burblesing, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me. First question we usually start with, Catherine, is um, what do you see as the purpose of school-based education? Oh, well, I mean, the purpose of school is partly to teach them lots of stuff like English, maths and science and so on. But I also think that it's um, about socialising children, giving them a place where they can feel loved and looked after and uh, meet friends and learn how to be proper human beings, you know, because children don't know how, how to have conversations, how to sit up on a chair, how to turn up on time, all that other stuff, the soft skills I talk about. The academic skills, yes, that, that seems pretty obvious, but it's all the other stuff that I'm most proud of really at Michaela, which you can't examine and you can't bring out results and say, this is how well we've done on it. But when people visit the school, that's the stuff that they're most impressed by. Mm, got it. I mean, that kind of leads into my next question. Why did you feel there was a need to start Michaela? Because of my 20 odd years in education, where I felt schools weren't doing, weren't tight enough on the behavior, on the expectations, and that I felt, generally speaking, we weren't getting the most out of children. And 
I thought it could be better. And I have to say, I didn't know this was possible. I didn't, it's not like I had a vision for Michaela and thought, yes, it's going to look like this. Not at all. And every time I go around the school, because often I'm in my office meeting with staff, doing podcasts with you, you know, so I'm not necessarily going into the lessons. And whenever I do wander around the school, I'm always stunned by how extraordinary it is. And I can't believe it. So I most certainly didn't have the vision. And even I myself now am surprised by it. But what I did was, me and other members of staff, of senior staff, we would discuss every little detail in the school and think, well, how can we do each detail better? And when you do that, in the end, you end up somewhere and you go, wow, oh yeah, look, when you look at all those details and fix those details, you end up somewhere that's better. Mm, that's great. That kind of leads into another question I was keen to ask, which is about like, how, how, how do you know you've got the right number of kind of rules and routines and stuff? Because obviously if you're like, the goal is academic achievement plus these kind of character soft skills that you were talking about earlier. But if you have, if we have too many rules, that's inefficient, right? Because we've got, we're enforcing more than we need to. And if you have too few, or I assume as, as per the argument, we don't get the most out of students as, as you put it. So how do we, how do we tell if we've got it right in terms of the right number of rules, what the rules are and things like that? Yeah, it's a good question. How do you tell? That's a really good question because often what I find is people say, well, my school's good and things are going well for us. So there we go. And I always think, yes, but how do you know it couldn't be better? Um, and I often in education, I find that people are satisfied with things that aren't as good as they could be. So you need to have really high standards. And to do that, you need to go somewhere that is doing extraordinary things and see it first. <laughs> so we get 600, over 600 visitors every year, mainly teachers from all around the world. We get teachers from Australia who come. And then when they see it, they say, my goodness, I didn't know this was possible. Like I say, I didn't know it was possible, right? So, and when they see what's possible, it then stops you from saying, yeah, everything's great at my school because you can compare it and you can say, well, our children at our school aren't as polite. They're not as well behaved. Our lessons aren't as sensible and we don't put, pack as much into a lesson. Our corridors aren't as kind of kind and caring. You know, when I say a corridor is kind and caring, where there's no bullying, where kids move swiftly to their lessons without any hassle. And when you see it, you then go, oh, I see. <laughs> I didn't know that this could be the case. And then you work towards trying to make it that way. So it's not that we say, this is how many rules we've got. That's what you need to impose. You, you just start with, well, is this the way we'd like to be? No. Okay. Maybe we need a rule for that. But it's, I mean, it's less to do with rules. I wouldn't say it's that we need a rule for it. It's more that we need to change the practice around that. So for instance, when we started, we did, we're known for our silent corridors. When we started the school, we didn't have silent corridors. <laughs> we're also vegetarian. When we started the school, we weren't vegetarian. You know, there's huge changes that have been made over the last eight years. So, and take the corridors for, as an example. We thought it was enough to say to the children, just chat quietly. Now, I know from my experience in all my schools in the past that, of course, corridors in the inner city can become very dangerous places where children are bullied badly, they're pushed to the ground, they're beaten up, uh, children running and screaming and slamming doors. Then children turn up 10 minutes late to your lesson, throw the door open, bang! You know, everybody starts laughing. The teacher then has to try and get everybody to be quiet again and so on. The disruption because of, of difficult corridors is enormous. And we thought, right, well, you know, we'll just tell them to chat quietly. The problem with telling them to chat quietly is that things can spin out of control. And this is one an idea, I think, when it comes to running anything, 
in particular when you have children involved, that sometimes we can underestimate. You have a vision for something and you're allowing something to happen, but slowly things start to unravel. So they talk about the frog in the boiling water and you put a frog in boiling water. I don't know if this is actually true, but as the saying goes, frog, put in the boiling water, the frog will jump out. If you put a frog in cold water and turn up the heat slowly, it boils to death. And that is what happens in schools, I would say, that you, you start with something that looks quite nice, but gradually it starts to unravel bit by bit until eventually kids are being beaten up in the corridor. That's our, um, that's our pips. So children are, are moving now uh, for the lessons and you wouldn't know that. So you just heard, I knew the pips were coming because I could hear the chairs moving above us and that's all you hear. In, in a normal school, when you would start hearing right now, you know, doesn't happen. And that's because our corridors are silent. The children will leave their, their classroom silently and they will move in a minute and a half to the next lesson. Now, when you're trying to catch children up with their chronological reading age, because they're 11 years old and they actually read like a six-year-old, you want as much time with them in the lessons. You don't want that disrupted. So it's not just that they're not being beaten up and so on in the corridors. It's that they are going to get more lesson time. But the point is, when we started, they were allowed to talk quietly. And um, the problem is, is that teacher X, who's in the corridor enforcing that don't talk loudly, and teacher Y have different ideas about what quiet is, qu quietly. Well, no, 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 you've got to demerit now, you're talking too loudly. But Mr. Y said that I was talking at that level and it was okay. Oh no, but I think Mr. X, no, 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 Mr. X judges this. And then children feel that's very unfair. And they can play the system. So when you have silence, well, everybody knows what silence is, right? If you talk at all, then you get a demerit. So then no one talks. And it's a minute and a half, very quickly. They move to the lessons, no issues. Lessons are never disrupted. Nobody ever turns up late. And it's really great. So people see this as so oppressive. Silence is oppressive. Silence is quite enjoyable. I mean, why not? And children should know how to enjoy silence. Not only that, it's just really efficient. And the children get to the lessons. No one's being bullied. Nobody's being beaten up. And the teachers aren't having to run around uh, then chasing incidents that happen. A head teacher came here the other day. He said to me, gosh, we've taken your idea of, of having, having lineups at lunchtime, at the end of lunch. And then they're in silence and they all go in silence to the lessons. He said, suddenly now our workload is cut in half because we don't have to chase up any of the incidents. <laughs> there are no incidents because we've got them in lines. So there's enormous benefit. But if we see these things as somehow oppressive, then we don't do them. And of course, people are in schools where they think, well, we don't get loads of kids being beaten up. They're a bit boisterous. And once in a while you get some bullying, but it's quite good. I would say to them, it could be so much better. Hmm. So is it kind of an approach where you progressively adjust things based upon, I mean, you've got a standards of, of learning and time on task and things like that, and you just tweak rules or procedures or policies to try to get to that. See, you keep, it's interesting because you keep saying, yes, but what's the vision? How are you then living out the vision? And I keep saying, there is no vision. <laughs> the vision is simple. The vision, there is a vision, but the vision is always, we can be better. So everything we're doing, we're always thinking, how do we tweak it in order to get better? There's no idea at the end of, we've got to get here. Now, obviously at some point I stop. So I look at the silent corridors and think, well, this is working really well. I would say people stop with lower standards than mine about what they expect from children and what they expect. Now, not everyone, other people have similar standards, but I'd say too often in our schools, we don't expect enough of children. It's amazing what children will do when you hold your standards really, really high. 
but you've got to force yourself because actually it's it's much easier not to have silent corridors for the teachers because the teachers don't have to be out in the corridors manning them. The teachers don't have to, nobody in leadership will make it so that, you know, make sure everybody's out, having a duty rota, making, you know, making sure I'm Ging everybody up every week saying, come on, we can do this. You know, you don't have to do any of that. So you don't do it. And the kids mess around in the corridors and you just think, well, that's normal because that's what kids do. And of course it depends on your intake. We're in the inner city, so we've got a tough intake. If you've got a more selective intake, then you might not need to have silent corridors and the kids just, you know, they might push each other a bit, but you think it's okay, we can deal with that. Well, okay. I mean, I don't know. You Each head has to make his own decision. And the principal says, well, either I don't care if they push each other a bit or I do care and therefore I'm going to do something about it. it. It's sort of how much do you care about having a certain kind of school, I suppose. Mm, yeah, I really like your point about there's no end point. You know, we're always striving to get better. When we when we zoom in on that better, like what do you see as that being made up of? Like when you walk around your school and you go, "Oh, could we better be better at this? Be better at that?" Are there any like key things you like? These are the these are the top things we need to always be striving to get better at, or is it just like everything? It's everything. Well, they're different things. So different different year groups need different things depending on my different heads of year. Different heads of year have different strengths and weaknesses. So one head of year, one of my heads of year, he's really great on the organization and he's got all these systems, he's got spreadsheets and so on. And I'm always saying to him, okay, but we need to concentrate more on the culture in your year group and think about how you chat to them and how you're developing your tutors. I've got another head of year who's really great on all the culture stuff, but he's completely disorganized. So we're working at getting him being more disorganized, more organized. I mean, it depends. So each, each year group, each tutor group is represented by their tutor and their head of year. And different issues will appear in different forms, depending on the strengths and weaknesses of their form tutor and their head of year. Same with the departments. Some departments will be excelling at the moment, other departments not so much so, so I'm helping to support those. But three years ago, it might have been the other way around, depending on who you have as staff, who the head of department is. That's what's so fascinating about being the head, which is that you've constantly got different issues that you're supporting. You know, nothing's ever predictable in a school. You're always... You know, I always say they make a move, we make a move with kids, you know. You come out with a new homework and you ask them to do it in this way and then they find some way of of tricking you and getting around it so that they don't have to do it. And then, so we make a move, they make a move. And that's what makes kids so lovely. That's why we love them, you know, because they're a bit naughty and they try and get away with stuff and and we make sure that we're the, the adults in charge and that we, uh, we're supporting them and reaching the standards that we want them to reach. Mm. I'm I'm curious, like, because so you were having that challenge in the in the corridors that you responded to with. Well, first talk quietly, but then when you realised that was quite hard because of differing standards, you you all went to the silent corridors. Another head in another school might might think, oh, rather than talk about volume, well, let's talk about like a value, like let's walk respectfully through the corridors or something like that. What would you say to someone if, if they were in this school and they were in that meeting where you were trying to work out how to deal with the corridors next and someone said, why can't we just have uh, respectful corridors? What would you be your response to them? So I would say, so what does that look like? What, what specifically do you want? And they might say, well, for the children to talk nicely to each other and to just be quiet, you know, without being rude and not being mean to each other and so on. And then I come back to the initial point, which is that, well, how do you how do you monitor that? How do you enforce that? It, you'll find 
that when kids get a little bit too loud or a little bit too boisterous, that different teachers will have different standards for that. You've always got to have something that you can implement because otherwise all you're doing is telling the kids that you'd like respectful corridors, but you're not actually going to get them. So there's two issues with that. The first issue is that to have consistency of approach and application across the school through all your teachers is impossible if you're just saying, let's be respectful. If you say, let's be silent, you can have that consistency across the class, uh, across the teachers. And the second thing is the kids don't know what the expectations are. Like, what does respectful mean? <laughs> like, they're not able to fulfill whatever you ask them to do. You've got to make sure that they can do it. So never ask a child to get a top grade at GCSE if that's just not within his capacity. Do you know, if he's disabled, and he can't climb the steps, don't ask him to climb the steps. You know, you should never ask a child to do something that he simply can't do. And if you're too vague in your requirements of the kids, then they're not going to be able to deliver what you want. And then when you punish them for not giving you what you want, they will resent you for it. There has to be absolute clarity. So there needs to be consistency from the staff, and there needs to be clarity about what we're asking the kids to do. And saying to them, be respectful. <laughs> What's respectful for them is, is not respectful This for this one. What does that mean is the point. What does it look like? And it's impossible to enforce. And so I think too often we kid ourselves into thinking that's what we're doing when we're not doing it. Now, like I say, if you have a more selective intake, then it might be that everybody's respectful just naturally you know, and it's okay. And it's enough for you. You know, they're not pushing each other. They're, they're talking to each other and that's how they are. Then that's fine. But if you've got a bunch, if you've got kids who won't be able to do that naturally and need to be taught how to do that naturally, they won't naturally know what is too loud. They just won't know. (laughs) And you then can't teach it to them because you've got different teachers in different corridors at different times. And then you have no consistency. And then you've got resentment. And the number one thing you need from children is buy-in, right? Of course, you've got detentions for your 10, 15%, 20%. But most of the kids need to buy into what you're doing. And if they feel they're being punished for things that they haven't understood and that you haven't been clear about and you haven't been consistent on, they will hate you for it. And then you'll lose your school. So the respectful thing which I have to say many schools do, often doesn't work. And then the kids get upset. And then what happens is the teachers stop enforcing it because the teachers don't want the kids to hate them. So they think, well, if Mr. X says it's okay, well, I'm not going to then give him the detention for that. So forget that. And then little by little, then it starts to unravel. That, and that's your major problem. And then suddenly there are fights in the corridors and you go, but I, we were meant to be respectful. And then, and then you call a meeting with the staff and you say, okay, everybody, we need to tell everybody to be respectful. Let's make some posters. Respectful, everybody. You talk about it in tutor time. Everybody be respectful. You talk about it in assembly, but they're not respectful. What do we do now, right? And that is what happens. And people don't realize. And it all comes from a good place. People think that what they're doing is the right thing, but it, it just doesn't work in a, in a school with kids. Yeah, it's really interesting. I couldn't agree more on that that buy-in point, especially. So at the start, you were kind of talking about the importance of of, of soft skills and, and developing them in students. And I mean, there's a lot of things here that you advocate for, like gratitude, which is which is fantastic. And and also part of the, the school, uh, one of the mottos is be kind. So I, I guess I'm trying to bring these two things together. So be kind, 
could maybe be seen as like a similar kind of concept to be respectful. And so I definitely understand the argument in terms of like, it's really, really hard to enforce, like be respectful because that's a bit of a... Well, in the corridor. So okay, being kind and being respectful, of course, generally speaking, you want the kids to do that. I'm talking specifically about corridors, right? That be respectful in the corridors is kind of code for we want them to just walk along chatting to each other quietly. That's what you're saying there, right? You're in a respectful way, probably, yeah. In a friendly way, maybe. But not necessarily quietly, yeah. yeah. What does it look like? What what is it actually, what's actually happening? Take the word respectful out of there. How do you describe it? The corridor is one where they're chatting to each other quietly. They're not pushing and shoving. They're being nice in what they say. That's essentially what you mean. So that, we're talking specifically about the corridor there. Being respectful and kind, of course you want the children to be respectful and kind. So that's a different thing. But we're talking specifically in the corridor for that minute, what do you want them doing? Do you want them in silence or do you want them chatting quietly? And my point is the chatting quietly will eventually spin out of control if you have a more challenging intake. If you don't, then it might be okay. And that's where you make your judgment call on what's okay. If chatting in your school isn't an issue because they don't push and shove and scream and shout and so on, then great, leave it alone. Why would you, you wouldn't bring in the rule there, right? If on the other hand, it's a problem, then you've got to go to the extent of silence because you're never going to get this middle of the road idea that you imagine is lovely because in a school that's selective, that happens. You have to recognize what you've got and then analyze that and deal with that accordingly. But being generally kind and respectful, of course you want the kids to be able to do that. And then you need to teach them what that means. You've forgotten a pen in class, you lend the pen to your friend. If you, at lunch, for instance, here, if a child drops a plate, in many schools in the inner city, if a child drops a plate, the kids all go, that's what happens. Here, if a kid drops a plate, five or six other kids run to help him pick it up. So, and that's the sort of thing you narrate all the time to explain what being kind and being respectful is. We teach them gratitude here. So at the end of lunch, they stand up and they give an appreciation. I'd like to thank my mom for waking me up this morning on the count of two, one, two. And we all clap, you know. So that is teaching respect, you know, and gratitude and decency and so on. But that isn't about specifically being in the corridor and what you do at that moment in time. That's a different thing. Okay, sure. So just to summarize um, before the next next point, it's probably possible to impart through lots of examples like the ones you do, lots of lots of maybe activities or but probably more examples that you gave, a general view of being kind or being respectful, but then it's not necessarily uh, reasonable to expect students to be able to transfer that to a specific scenario like the like the corridor. Well, the thing is, is that it's hard to know vo- volume, you know, like specific, like what, what death, how many decibels is your voice? Like it, it's too specific. It, it's too like lend a pen. That's a big thing. You, that's an easy thing to do to know. You would have to, you would have to spend a lot of time training them. And I suppose if you did, if you spent a lot of time training, but even if you spend a lot of time training and it's just not worth it, it's a corridor. Who cares? It's a minute and a half transition time. Why would you spend all your time on the corridor? I got lessons to teach. (laughs) We've got playtime to have. We've got sports week this week. I don't know. We've got a million things to do. Why on earth would you spend all this time trying to organize your corridors? Just make them silent. It's quick. They get to the lessons. 
And the problem, it's, it's, the, it's the frog in the boiling water thing, the unraveling. They won't notice it unraveling. Kids, what happens? You know this if you're in a room with lots of people. Some people start speaking loudly. Somebody else speaks more loudly, more loudly, more loudly. It gets louder and louder and louder. And then eventually everybody's shouting at each other, right? Like it's the unraveling that you need to be aware of. Whereas the other issue of how do you just be kind generally, there's no unraveling there. That, that, that's just not an issue. You're not trying to manage a very specific thing for a very short period of time, which can have huge impact on your lessons, on your ethos, on your children's buy-in, on everything. You know, when you have silent corridors, there just are no issues. Everybody just quickly moves to their lessons and gets on with it. You know, like, why wouldn't you do it? Mm. Okay. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Catherine stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. This month's summary will include what I learned from my visit to Michaela and my discussion with Catherine, as well as the recording of more in-depth personal reflections of my visit. In addition, I've actually come back over to the UK this September, which is where I'm recording this podcast from right now. And that was following my July visit. And this is because there are a number of other schools and organizations that I wanted to visit, but didn't get time to first time around. These schools and organizations include AIM North London, Oasis Academy South Bank, Ted Rag St. Luke's, Reach Academy Feltham, Dixon's Trinity Academy, and Dixon's Manningham. I also wanted to check out Step Lab and the Ambition Institute in more detail. So in upcoming members-only podcasts, I'll include my reflections on these school visits as well. So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Catherine Burblesing. I guess I was wondering, like, if uh, I agree, like, in terms of how much time it would take to teach that, like, impart that view of respect or something. And obviously, the silent corridors works works super well as well. I was just wondering, in terms of the time it takes to enforce enforce it or or communicate these ideas, maybe if if that time was put into those broader concepts, then that would re- reduce time for. And I'm just, I don't know if this would work or not. This is just an idea that would reduce the number of um, policies required because you wouldn't need one for the corridors. You wouldn't need one for entering classrooms and and exiting classrooms, et cetera, because there'd be these broader concepts, which themselves took lots of time to impart. The broader concepts are taught here. That's all we ever do. That's all our assemblies are about. But you're talking about how to move children around the school, right? Like, this is a very artificial thing, school, moving around hundreds of children. Like, that never happens in life. Like, you're not in, like, that doesn't happen. You don't have a bell that goes and you move from lesson to lesson. That, that doesn't happen. You're trying to think of a way of maximizing your time with the kids to be able to do good stuff. 
and not like putting them in lines. Like, I don't understand what the problem is. You put them in a line and then that means they get into the school quickly and easily. You know, you, you could just let them all come in at once, but you would constantly have to be telling them off for not doing it properly because they would get it wrong. It is because of the unraveling thing, because kids get enthused by the other kids around them. And then somebody steps in front of another kid and then somebody else will oh, push me out of the way and so on. And, th- and then that's just what happens, you know? And that's never not going to happen. Like I would say even in your selective areas, but you will get that. But you might feel like it happens, it doesn't happen that much so you can get away with it because it, 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 they are selective. And perhaps you have a massive school with loads of space. So you know, when you have narrow, narrow corridors in a building that's not even meant to be a school and you're right next to the trains and you have no fields and so on, like you've got to create a scenario where the children are going to succeed. The point of teachers is like in your lesson, if your children were failing all the time at what you were trying to get them to do, they would feel disheartened. They would feel, oh gosh, just, we're not doing it again. We're not managing it. Our point in school we ought to be as teachers to create an environment where they can feel successful. And if you don't have the scaffolding, the silent corridors is scaffolding for them to be able to succeed at being somebody who gets quickly to their lessons and learns, right? And if you don't have that with a challenging intake, with some other intakes, I imagine if you're more selective, you can do it. You'll just have really chaotic corridors. And you know, what I'm talking about is quite common. Oh yeah, I've seen it in so many schools. Yeah. It's, and it's horrible. It's like, really horrible to like, see. Yeah. I'm not talking about some exceptional situation with you when you're only in the deep dark in a city. Like, this is pretty normal, you know? And it's something that you can just get rid of like that really quickly, you know? But most people don't do it, Yeah, you know? Thanks for your willingness to explore that that on with me, Catherine. I really appreciate it. What makes Michaela Michaela? And when I ask that, you know, often when people think about Michaela or discuss Michaela, they do focus on these kind of specifics like silent corridors or the way students enter and exit lessons or lining up after after lunch and things like that. But in your mind, what is it? What are the core things, the yeah, active ingredients that make Michaela Michaela? A good question because, like I say, corridors is is like who cares? It's a quick thing. You're going to spend all your time thinking about corridors. The whole point is you make them silent, then you can think about the stuff that really matters. You do lineups and you don't have to think about all the various incidents that you then have to chase afterwards, you know, because that's no longer an issue. You then have the time to think about pedagogy. You have the time to think about how are teachers teaching? Are we getting the most out of the kids? Which is what we spend our time thinking about. I have time to sit down here and do a podcast with you. I'm not running around putting out daily fires on, on every day. You know, some heads, they can't sit down for a moment because every day there are just a long list of incidents to deal with. And the deputies are just running around, parent meeting after parent meeting, dealing with incident after incident. That just doesn't happen here. And I don't know why everybody wouldn't want that, really, because it's much nicer. So what, what are the things? Well, the way we teach. We're able to really concentrate on what makes for good pedagogy in the classroom. Talking about checks for understanding, talking about how you get the children to engage without just leading the learning themselves, that you want the teachers leading the learning, but at the same time, you want the children thinking about the learning. And how do you manage a class discussion? And how do you do pair work in such a way that it's quick and swift so that they can do the pair work, they can then have the class discussion, they can then do the written exercise where you're maximizing their learning space. So the key thing when you come here, you know, if you talk to the kids and ask them about their knowledge of history and science and French and so on, 
people are blown away. They can't believe how much they know. And they say, how is this possible? This is a bottom set. How can this be a bottom set? They know so much. So that's because we spend so much time thinking about the stuff that really matters because we're not spending all our time thinking about corridors because it's not an issue. The lineups make it so that we don't have all those incidents. So the teaching, the quality of the teaching is like nothing, is like no, none other. I mean, it really is extraordinary how we teach here. And then also the people who they are. You know, it's what I, you said, kindness and being respectful and so on. Well, our children... I mean, the main thing that people are amazed by is just how amazing our kids are, the people who they are, how kind they are, how respectful they are, how ambitious they are, how resilient they are, how determined and how ambitious they are, you know. And that comes from the culture. And culture is the most important thing in your school. And you need to think about that. But of course, sadly, many leaders in education don't have time to think about that because they're dealing with all the incidents. So the behavior stuff is really just a foundation that you need in order to do the stuff that really matters. And the stuff that really matters, like the irony is, is when you have all those rules and you have all that, you know, stuff that keeps the kids, you know, behaving, that, that's when you can teach them about respect. That's when you can teach them about kindness. But if you go in there just saying, oh, what we want is just everything, everybody to be respectful, they're not going to be respectful. <laughs> it's when you've got all the other all the logistics worked out that you don't have to think about that. I don't have to think about it. I'm not thinking about the corridors right now. I'm thinking about stuff that really matters. And then you're thinking, how do I develop the culture in this year group? Oh, you know, this year group, it isn't, isn't their culture isn't as good as that year group. How are we going to work on that? How do I work with the tutors to get them saying the right kinds of things, to get them encouraged? So for instance, I did an assembly this morning about reading and reading over the summer. We're doing a reading challenge. Now, our kids are from the inner city. Reading is not something that comes naturally to them. We want them reading. Getting kids in the inner city to read is really, really hard. And we spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know, because we have time to think about that because we're not thinking about all the other behavior stuff. Yeah. And the kids are more likely to buy into what we say about reading because they buy into the school because they're not being punished unfairly because we've got consistency and clarity when it comes to the behavior. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that consistency and clarity point, that's a great segue into the next thing I was really curious about, which is to run any school well, you need to have alignment from staff. Yeah, the staff needs to buy into the vision, which is another term you used earlier, and um, you know, and to, to support the general ethos and the culture, continue, positively contribute to it. How do you ensure that at Michaela, every staff member is upholding every standard that, that you and the school holds dear? Yeah. So that's another really good question. <laughs> it is the number one thing you need. You know, you need consistency from staff. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that because I don't have to think about all the other things that like we said, corridors, et cetera. So I meet them every morning on a Monday for briefing. I meet them every afternoon after school on a Wednesday. We spend an hour and a half together as a staff body. And there are lots of observations that happen all the time amongst staff where they're popping into lessons and sharing good practice. And it's quite common. It's just a normal thing. But for me, also new staff who join, in addition to that Wednesday, I also see them 45 minutes on a Thursday after school where I'm talking to them about all the details about school and ideas, philosophy, politics, all sorts of things to get everyone al aligned in what, in what we say and do with the kids. Now, of course, to a certain extent, uh, the people who come here are self-selecting. So they already know that we're a certain kind of school, so that they're the kinds of people who apply. But when people apply, I'm very clear when they come for interview, I say, look, today isn't just about us figuring out whether we want you. It's about you figuring out whether you want us mm -hmm. and you might not want us. And I won't be insulted if you don't. You know, that's fine. There's lots of people who don't agree with what we do, but I definitely don't want you to come here to teach here and then undermine what we're doing. You know, I make it very clear we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And so you need to want to sing from that, that same hymn sheet. 
And then what happens is teachers will come and talk to me individually. They'll say, oh, I'm not quite sure about this. Why do we do this? And then I'll have a conversation with them about it. I'll say, well, this is why. And you tell me, what do you really think? Every member of staff who joins the school, uh, when they come to visit us, they will spend an hour and a half with me, just one-on-one talking about ideas. And they come with a whole list of questions. I say to them, I want you to write down all the things that you're uncomfortable with, that you've seen. I'll give them things to read and they go away and read. And I say, anything you don't feel comfortable with, come back and talk to me about it. So then they come and talk to me about it and they say, oh, I don't really like, I don't really understand silent corridors. Why do we do them? And then I'll say, well, this is why, blah, 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 blah. And then I'll say, any other questions? They'll say, yeah, but I still don't get this. And I'll say, da, 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 da. And so I spend a lot of time speaking to staff. So when I say I'm in my office a lot, I am talking to staff a lot because I think it's really important for me to be supporting the consistency and clarity of staff. Less important than I spend my time with the children, more important than I spend my time with the staff because the staff in the end spend their time with the children. And, you know, it's something I miss. I wish I could spend more time with the children, but I I can't. And I see that as a sacrifice that I make in order to make sure that I'm delivering a school that takes good care of the children and where the children are happy and feel loved. Mm, That's great. And I think probably many leaders can take a great lesson from that in terms of the amount of time and commitment it takes and giving your own personal time to those staff and that one-on-one session. It's, yeah, so crucial for that. But of course, where do you get the time if you've got loads of incidents that you're having to deal with? Mm. You know, and I feel for those heads. I mean, what are they, what are they meant to do? They're, they're running around dealing with incidents all day. And that's why it's so important to get that other stuff right, because then I can get, I have time to be able to do the stuff that I do with the staff. Yeah. One question that uh, a lot of people had on, on Twitter, because I, I mentioned I was coming in here, a lot of people were wondering about catering to neurodiversity, students with ADHD, ASD, and other special educational needs. Well, I mean, they're just like all kids, really. I mean, you know, what I said earlier, you don't ask a child to do something that they can't do, obviously. But I do think often we have our standards too low for kids who we feel have a certain label and we then say, well, they just can't do it. And it's not just SEN kids we'll have that for. We might have lower standards for black kids. We might have lower standards for poor kids. We might have lower standards for kids who have single mothers, you know. And we say to ourselves, well, it's too difficult for them. So I'm not going to expect them to do it. And yes, there is a place for that if the child really can't do it. But the difficulty any teacher has is trying to figure out, can they do it or can't they do it? Is this something they genuinely cannot do? Or am I not insisting enough on them doing it? Am I lowering my standards for them because I feel that they are SEN or they're black or they're from a poor family or they're from a single parent family or whatever it is. You know, a a lot of schools, for instance, will talk about premium kids, for instance, and they'll say, well, if you're a kid who comes from a poorer family, teachers need to know that. And then automatically what happens is the standards drop for those kids. But maybe those kids could do just as well as the kids who are richer than they are. Um, How do you know that they can't? So we've got to be very careful about dropping our standards for kids who are perfectly capable of doing more than that. And I do think that the system generally encourages us to drop our standards for those kids. You know, it's the case when Ofsted came here, they said our disadvantaged kids, our SEN kids, perform really well, you know, perform as well. And that's that's a key thing when looking at uh, a school, to look at the stats between the disadvantaged and the non-disadvantaged, the SEN and the non-SEN. You know, is it the case that those kids are performing just as well? Because if they're not, then you need to ask questions about, well, is it that our standards are too low for them? You know, that's what I would say. But at the same time, we don't ask disabled kids to climb the stairs. You know, you don't ask a kid to do something he can't do. 
that that's obvious. The difficulty is knowing, is it that they can't do it? Or are they just saying they can't do it? Because kids will look for excuses, always, you know? They'll always, if you lower your standards, they're not going to fight you to keep your standards high for them. They're just not. What's something you've changed your mind about since starting Michaela? Well, a million things. I mean, sign in corridors. <laughs> oh, I mean, in the last week, I've changed my mind about things. I mean, we are constantly changing, constantly adapting things according to what we need to do at that time. I think people think, oh, we're just set. We just, I have some vision and I've just uh, given. We wouldn't be excellent if that were the case. You know, we're excellent precisely because we're constantly changing depending on what we see. I mean, we do turn to your partner now loads, 20 times, 25 times in a lesson. That was a guest once who came and said, oh, Catherine, you ever thought about turning to your partner? And I said, well, we do do pair work. She said, yeah, but how many times a lesson? I said, maybe four or five times. She said, no, you need to do it 25 times. And we changed everything that we did. We, try, we, we decided to do it differently, this very quick turn to your partner thing. We realized how brilliant it was. And now it's everywhere in the school. There are things that we started off with. You know, I know people know us for our knowledge organizers. We started off with a lot of knowledge organizers. We do a little bit of that now, but far less than we did at the beginning. Our entire English department doesn't use a single single knowledge, knowledge organizer. We've just adapted according to what we find works and doesn't work and because we're always trying to get better. Mm. What prompted that change? Because I'm, I'm quite interested in knowledge organizers. So what prompted the, the shift away from that? Well, the thing is, at the time, I remember people said, knowledge organizers is this great invention. Well, you've just written some stuff down on a piece of paper that the kids need to learn. I mean, that's all it is. People have been doing that for centuries. But the problem with a knowledge organizer is that if, and I do think there are lots of people out there who, who end up misusing them in this way, if the child just ends up kind of learning, this is this, this is that, da, 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 you know, this kind of rote learning thing, then their learning won't become very flexible later. Having said that, you do want them to learn some stuff. So some knowledge organizers is fine for dates and history, certain facts and science, you want them to learn the exact phrase, that's great. But where you want things to be a bit more flexible, knowledge organizers may not be so ideal because teachers may not use it in a flexible way. So you as an individual teacher might think, oh, I can do this flexibly, fine. But when you're looking at it from a head's point of view, overall across the school, if your entire English department is using these knowledge organizers, you might not end up with the flexible kind of thinking that you'd like the kids to have. Mm, that's, a, that's a great point. How was it showing up that students' knowledge wasn't as flexible that made you go, oh, we need to change this? Uh, use of vocabulary in particular. As in they only know how to use it in like one context or something or? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and it's just not flexible enough. Mm. And I said, well, I, you know, there's a problem here. What's going on? You know, and then we said, you know what, actually we think it's the use of these knowledge organizers. Well, let's reduce them. And so we have massively. And so we've got better and better at that. And that. Even now, you know, I was talking to my head of French saying, oh, you know, so how, how much do we want to lean on the kind of knowledge organizer idea? How much not? And we're constantly changing. We're, you know, we're adapting all the time and we will continue to change depending on what we see in front of us. I always say, look at the kids, <laughs> look at the kids in front of you and think, well, are they doing what you want them to do? Now, the problem is we then come back to the original question, which is, well, how do you know whether or not what they're doing is good? Right. And that's where you then need to go and look at other schools. You need to see what's possible. And then as they're getting better and better, try and push them a little bit further. See if you can get it better and better and better again. It's the same thing with disadvantaged kids or SEN kids or whatever it is. Are we actually getting the most out of them? Or is it that we're me they're meeting our standards and our standards are too low? That's the, that's the perennial question that you're constantly asking, right? 
and constantly trying to figure it out, you know, and, and we're there too. Like we're also thinking, well, have we got it quite right here? Have we got it quite there? And, it, it, you know, that's what you do really as, as a practitioner in, in this field. But, and that's why you need to get rid of all the other issues about behavior so you can really concentrate on all this other stuff that really matters. Mm. Where do you continually go for kind of sources of inspiration and new ideas about education? What are the, are the other schools that you visit or where, where, do you, where do you go? Yeah, so I visited lots of schools and many of our ideas have come from other schools. I also send some of my staff to other schools to see what they can get, you know. Can you share some of those names of those schools? Is that Well, for instance, just the other day, my head of sixth form went to see uh, Newham Collegiate, which is in East London. Now, they're just a sixth form college, so they are very different. And they've got 4,000 kids applying for 300 places and they're super, super bright. And we've got two grammar schools next to us, so they get the top slice. So we do have a very different intake of kids. But... I still, I know they're very good at what they do. So I sent him along and he came back, my head of sixth form came back saying, oh, they're really good on data and the way they analyze things and da-di-da. And there were all sorts of ideas that he got. And this is now in our eighth year, you know, he's got these ideas from them. Brilliant. Well, you know, we're going to use some of those ideas now. So that's just one example. I mean, there's lots of examples. Um, I was meant to go and see Q3, which is a school in Birmingham. Um, but I've had to cancel, unfortunately. I was meant to go uh, earlier this week, but I'll go to see, see them in September and who knows what I'll pick up from there. Y- you always pick up ideas when you visit other places and you're always rethinking. And also intakes change, staff change of yours, different difficulties and challenges come up. You talk to another head and you say, oh, what do you think about this? What about that? Uh, what do you, you know, like it's just a constant conversation, isn't it? And you just got to keep your mind open to ideas and what you might do differently. And we're always open, which is why we've changed so much in the last eight years. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. What's that? Is there something that you're working on as a school at the moment that you're really keen to improve on? Reading, like I just said. You know, our, re- our kids just don't read enough. It's, it's, it is it is a, and we've been, I mean, we've tr- we've been trying all sorts of things over the years. You mean like at home, kind of in their own time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just reading, uh, general reading. You know, we manage it with our top sets, but the other kids don't necessarily read. And a lot of them really struggle, you know, a lot of them find it difficult to read a couple of paragraphs. And how do you get kids who come to you at your, at age 11 who are not at their chronological reading age, you know, and they hate reading. And it's something, I mean, we've tried everything. So we used to try and hold them to account in reading, but that was very difficult because how do you do that? They're all reading different books. Then we tried getting them to read the same book. And then we had PowerPoints that we created where we would then go through questions afterwards to see whether or not they'd read it. But then we realized that, you know, you would say you had to read 14 pages and then they'd be tested on those 14 pages. And we had a class reader, essentially. But the problem with that was that some kids, they would actually have done the reading, but they just, SEN, whatever it is, they just couldn't remember it, you know? And they, and then we would say, well, you get into, you're getting into trouble for not having read when they actually had read it. So we couldn't do that. So we abandoned that. We've brought in loads of books, like kit, like, books, like so many different books in the, in the library, some that are really like for six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and so on deliberately. And we call them speed reads instead of saying, well, this is a book for a six-year-old. We just tell them it's a speed read, read it in a couple of hours. And we have like little signs that say that and so on. And the librarian, one of our English teachers, he's working really hard. So at the moment we're trying to say, get three books out over the summer and try and read those three books and then impress your tutor by writing these three book reviews and so on. But it's, it's entirely voluntary and trying to persuade them that the way you get better at writing is through reading. Of course, it's really difficult in an age of tech where they're on smartphones all the time, but we have a real push against smartphones to try and get them off their smartphones. You know, it's it's not something that I would say, 
we have managed to achieve. You know, I cannot say that this is something we've licked, you know, and I don't know if we ever will, but we're certainly trying everything we can and we're doing everything we can. And we've been doing that for eight years, trying different ideas, you know, because it takes a year or two to try one idea and then it doesn't work. Okay, then you try another year. You know, so idea, it's, um, it's really hard. It's very, very hard in this day and age. And reading is so important for children, for their, not just their writing skills, their conversational skills, for being an interesting person, for being able to explore the world, you know, go to different places, meet different people. It just, it, it opens, it opens a world for you. And, um, we aren't managing that as well as I'd like us to. So we'll keep trying. I mean, that you know, that's the thing. With all schools, we're all trying. We're all doing what we can. And um, the idea is you're trying to get better and better each day. Mm. Yeah, I think that'll be very encouraging for a lot of people to hear because I know right around the world, schools are trying to get students to, to read and to know that a school with a kind of focus and resolve that Michaela has, to know that a school like Michaela has struggled for eight years with that will be both encouraging and disheartening for people, I would imagine, because <laughs> it just yes. shows how hard it is. It is. It is very hard. And especially if the parents don't read and they have no books at home. They're just not in a culture of reading. It is very hard. I mean, even for schools where the kids do have books at home and the parents do read, it's hard then because of the whole tech, uh, you know, stuff in 2022. It's just, it's all encompassing. And it's so much easier to just look at your phone. Mm. And a book cannot compete with a phone. A, a phone has colors, bright colors, pop-ups, explosions, all kinds of things. A book is flat, black and white. How is it meant to compete? And then especially nowadays when children have been given that phone younger and younger and younger, there are toddlers with phones now. Well, and what parents don't realize is that if the toddler has a phone, when he comes to reading a book, he's just going to find the book boring. And then the parent says to themselves, well, he never did like reading, but it's not that he didn't like reading. You made it so that he wouldn't like reading because you gave him an alternative that a book simply cannot compete with. So that is very hard for kids, for parents. I, you know, I wish governments would talk about this <laughs> because uh, we all just underestimate the power of reading, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Michaela is a very a structured environment that's specifically designed to help students. As you've said multiple times, they focus on that the really important stuff. And it's, I, I know that, well, it seems that that structure has enabled a lot of students to focus on that core stuff. How many co cohorts have, have graduated and gone on to university now? Yeah, so just just one. Just the one. Okay. Oh. I'm wondering if you know how students, if you have any data or, or narratives or anything about how students thrive or not at university following going from a much more structured environment like Michaela into a much less structured environment like a uni. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I certainly have lots of um, feedback from pupils who left us at, at, after GCSE and they went on to other colleges to do other things because that's been a few year groups now that have done that and they fare very, very well. I mean, they're top of their year group. They win awards. They're like, they're turning up on time every day. They're turning up with their equipment. They're amazing. I, I, and they get to be well known. So I don't know, somebody on Twitter the other day wrote to me and said, he runs his restaurant. And he said, one of your ex-kids applied for a job as a waitress and I immediately fast-tracked her through to having a trial because I know she comes from your school, so she's going to be excellent, you know? <laughs> like, and, and so the reputation is there and people out there know. So other colleges are like, oh, it's a Michaela kid, we want him because he's going to be great, you know? The question that you're asking, which people often ask and where I think there's a misunderstanding, is that people think that by putting structures around kids that they're then going to blow up badly later. But it's exactly the opposite. Like, how does a child learn to cross the road? Because for years you held his hand and you showed him how to do it. 
And then eventually he learns to do it on his own. If you'd just said to him at the start, go on, cross the road on your own, he would have been killed, right? How does a child learn how to pour a, a glass of water, you know, from a jug? It's because for years you would help him and you would show him. How do you show him how to use a knife and fork? Same thing. If you just said, go to it, it's up to you. You lead your own learning on this. He would never have been able to do it. So that's the case for everything with a child. You scaffold them and then you gradually start pulling the scaffolding away. So when they're in the sixth form, for instance, they don't have the, the lunch that we do where the kids have a set topic and they have to talk about it and they're learning how to talk about something and eat their food at the same time. In the sixth form, they can go out and eat, you know, uh, elsewhere. They eat in their common room. In the lessons, we're not saying straight arms and, uh, you know, when they're asking, answering questions or sitting up straight and all this kind of stuff, slant, you know, like this. But by, by that time, they're just doing it naturally. So... What you're trying to do with any child doing anything is you're trying to teach them habits that then become just normal for them. So when our kids, other colleges are saying, wow, they all turn up on time. Isn't it amazing? It's because it's just been ingrained in them now. So they don't have to think about it. That's what you want to do. If, on the other hand, you don't have a structured system around them to embed these habits, those habits never get embedded. And so when they go for that job interview, they're having to think, must sit up straight, must make sure I've brought my, my, my pen and my book and so on. Oh, I must look at them in the eye. I must shake their hand. I also need to remember all of the stuff that I need to remember for this interview. Uh, oh, I, uh, oh, I'm slouching. Oh, sit up straight. Whereas our kids will just be sitting up straight for the whole interview because, well, it's just what they've done for years. So they don't think about it anymore. So it, it's that fundamental kind of shift in mindset for us to understand Teachers scaffold and eventually pull the scaffolding away so that child can do it on their own. What they don't do is just throw them in the deep end and say, okay, go to it, right? Because otherwise, they'd be, we'd have a whole load of dead kids on the street, you know, and mums don't do that. Mums instinctively know you're scaffolding all of the time and then pulling it away eventually. And that's what we should be doing in schools. We've only got a couple of minutes left, Catherine. I'll, I'll- I wanted to know, because you've been under a huge amount of pressure and criticism in, in your role and leadership of this school, how have you personally dealt with that and managed to stay strong, stay true to the vision and just cope with the stress essentially? Yeah. I always remember the kids. Why am I doing this? I'm doing it for them. And not just our kids, because I get letters from people from all over the world who come here and say, thank you so much. You've changed my classroom. Or people who hasn't, haven't even visited. They just follow me on Twitter. Some guy from Argentina the other day said, you need to know that, you know, my classroom is completely different thanks to you and the things you say. So people are going to listen to this podcast. And they're going to take ideas and they're going to implement them in Australia. And that thrills me to bits, you know, that a whole bunch of Australian kids are going to get a better education thanks to the things they're listening to here. So, I mean, otherwise, why would I do this podcast? I'm doing it because I want to help the children in Australia, you know, and I want to help the teachers in Australia because the stuff I'm telling you, it works. It's really good. And you've asked some really excellent questions, I have to say. I mean, you know, really delved into the kind of misunderstandings that people have about what we do and what can work for them in those in schools. And that sometimes those misunderstandings stop people from taking that extra step to actually try this, to, to question their practice, to think, oh, well, maybe we should do it a bit differently. Maybe we should raise our standards here. Maybe she's right. Maybe we expect too little of the kids and we can get more out of them, you know? And I'm not being super critical or anything. I'm just saying... This is what happens. I used to be one of you, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, I was an ordinary teacher in an ordinary school, you know, uh, in many ordinary schools, you know? The, the thing is, is that we can all grow and we can all learn. You just need to be open to it. And yeah, I get lots of criticism, but I know I get a lot of thanks too. There are a lot of people who say, come up to me on the street. Thank you for saying something. Thank you so much, you know? 
and they aren't able to say something. You know, I'm in a unique position now to be able to speak out and to talk about this stuff. I'm unlikely to lose my job. You know, in the day in 2010, when I gave my speech and I got into trouble and I ended up out of a job, then it was awful, you know, but I've kind of been through being canceled. That's already happened. (laughs) And um, I've come out on the other side. So I feel I sort of have a duty to do it, you know, to make the world a better place. That's what we should all be doing, you know, and that's what all teachers go into this for. I'm trying to make the world into a better place. And not everybody understands that and that's okay. But there are a lot of people who are convinced who over the years, and sometimes it takes people years, but they listen to me and then they say to me, you know, at first I thought you were a bit mad, but now after having listened to you for the last two or three years, I get what you're saying. And they change and children's lives are better for it. So that's brilliant. Catherine Bilbelsing, thank you so much for your time today and I can't wait for the school tour. (laughs) All right, yes. School tour, are you going to stay for lunch? You've come very early. I'd love to. You must. All right, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EWR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address for a weekly email summary, again, is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.